again. Welcome to episode 13 of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Gadi Taub. Hey, Gadi. 13. Wow. We're, 13. we're Lucky adults. Number. We're all adults yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, my kid just turned 12 uh, this week and we have so one we're older. bar mitzvah. We're older. <laughs> we, we're at the bar mitzvah of our, of our show, right? <laughs> Anyway, so um, we have a lot to talk about. There was a major drama in the Knesset today, and and, I mean, last night, early morning hours of today, Tuesday, and um, I woke up to the news, and it was the first time that I smiled in a long time upon hearing the morning news. (laughs) So why don't you start talking about what happened? How do you say Simchala Ed Anglit? Oh, it's Schadenfreude. It's German. There's no proper English term for it, but uh, because basically, the, because the English, the English-speaking peoples are too polite to have it. But it's it's like you're happy to see the misery of another. That's yes. basically it. Um, it's, pure, it's pure sadism. Uh, uh, so, so there was there was a huge drama. Uh, how do we set it up? There is a coalition now in which a two very small, allegedly right-wing parties. Um, are in cahoots with the left, the extreme left, the anti-Zionist left, and the Muslim brothers. And in this coalition, they have told us that they will they would be 10 degrees to the right of Netanyahu. That's what they said. It's the actual words of the of the of the man who stole the prime ministership, Naftali Bennett. And so now uh, we, we, we reached the first test for this coalition because um, what came up for a vote is the special uh, clause clause horacha no the special decree or the special it's a it's a it's a temporary decree the special temporary decree which is a supplement to the law of citizenship now why is this so important because uh, Israel does not allow the naturalization of people from enemy states. And ever since Oslo, the Palestinian territories, who are, of course, the Palestinian Authority is our enemy, but um, but not formally so. And so um, the, the, the security reasons for not letting people from the Palestinian territories implement what they call the right of return and gain Israeli citizenship, thus completely undermining the, the, the Jewish majority in the state of Israel. And they're doing it through, through family unification, that is marriage. And now this, this is portrayed to the Israeli public, especially in the, the, the press, which is overwhelmingly left-wing, as if this is a humanitarian thing. Look, these people are in love and we don't let them set up families. It's, we, we, we actually do, a citizen of Israel, um, can 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 get married and, and and unite with his bride on the other side uh, of the the uh, 1949 armistice it's line. Not, it's not the armistice line because it's what separates A and B now. Is C areas from B areas? They can go live under the Palestinian Authority, Authority. if if they wish. And and under this banner, um, what is really going on is that there is a mass um, uh, attempt to implement what they call the right of return and, and, and gain for people from the Palestinian Authority city, would gain citizenship in Israel. Now, I must say also- Can I just, in, can I just back up a little sure. bit for one yeah, second? Sure. Because I think it's important for people to understand. I mean, there are there, this is presented as a security measure, and it is a security measure. I think we talked about it last week because we talked about the fact that Palestinians who have been naturalized as Israeli citizenship due to family reunification are three times more likely than uh, native Israeli Arabs to commit terrorist attacks. So this was something that was I mean, in the 1990s, the, the government was led by peaceniks, and they were in the thrall of the Oslo process, the peace process that uh, then Prime Minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin and then Foreign Minister Shimon Peres inaugurated with Yasser Arafat in 1993. And it was supposed to be the era of peace, and uh, the PLO was our partner, and therefore um, they said that uh, intermarriage between Israeli citizens and 
uh, citizens that the Palestinian Authority would not be placed in the same category as marriages between Israeli citizens and citizens of enemy states. And as a result, Palestinians were allowed to get Israeli citizenship and residency rights uh, in Israel as a consequence of marriage to Israelis. So during the 1990s, when all of the peace signings was going on and we signed deal after deal, and I was a member of the Israeli delegation at the height of the uh, uh, Oslo process is one of the one of the negotiators uh, in, in the talks as an officer in the army. Um, nobody checked to see what was happening to these people who were uh, marrying Israeli Arabs. They didn't really care. Everybody wanted to just believe that everything was great. And then what happened was in 2000, Yasser Arafat rejected Palestinian statehood. He launched a, a jihad against Israel and hundreds of Israelis were killed, uh, sometimes on a monthly basis and suicide bombings and roadside uh, shootings and any other manner of mass shootings and mass, mass killings of Israelis by Palestinian terrorists. And uh, Israelis suddenly awoke to the fact that a lot of the people that were carrying out these massacres were Palestinians who had received Israeli citizenship through family reunification laws. So uh, the government at the time, uh, first uh, the Minister of the Interior at the time, this man named Eli Yishai, signed a temporary order blocking uh, the granting of Israeli citizenship to Palestinian Arabs. And just to get a sense of the dimensions, 120,000 of them received Israeli citizenship. It's an enormous number because there are only about uh, two, two million Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria and another 1.5, 1.6 million Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. So 120,000 is a lot. And, um, and so uh, first he put a temporary restraining order on all of the practice of granting citizenship. And then in 2003, the Sharon government and the Knesset passed this temporary order, which was, um, I mean, we're not lawyers, we don't know the exact way to translate it into American legalese, but it's basically an appendix to the citizenship law. But because it's not a formal, it didn't go through a formal a legislative process, um, it has to be renewed. This specific order inside of the citizenship law has to be renewed every year. And, you know, there's never been a problem renewing it because Israel's uh, Knesset and Israel's governments have always been a majority Zionists. And that's changed uh, with the formation of the Bennett Lapid government last year, last month. And so they were supposed to, as a matter of course, like Israel has done for the past 18 years or 17 years, they were supposed to just renew this order uh, to prevent uh, uh, mass immigration of Palestinian Arabs into Israel. Um, but they were but, faced but with also, a reality. But, there, but there's also a, 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 another nuance here that is, mm -hmm. that, is, that is crucial. And that because this, this state was afraid to make the demographic argument because our increasingly fanatically uh, liberal and what I call anti-democratic liberalism, which is the philosophy of our Supreme Court, which is gradually enroaching on Israel's national character, is that they couldn't make the demographic argument because then this is, for them, it's borderline racism to say that we want a, a Jewish state. So they always had to lean on the security argument. And, and this opened the gate for many ways to bypass this, this uh, provision of the law. Because, it, for instance, now, now it's an example, for a recent example. They say, well, people over 55 are less likely to commit terrorism. So let's let people over 55 do it. Um, no one has made the argument based on human rights of these women, because part of this is a buying of, is, is actually trafficking. Uh, people who practice polygamy buy cheaply women uh, young girls in the in the territories and make them their second, third, fifth, or tenth uh, wife. So, so we have a Supreme Court who is moving to delegitimize the um, the uh, necessity to preserve a Jewish majority in the Jewish state. So, I think we should get back to that in now, just a second, now, but I really yeah. want to talk about the drama last night uh, because the drama so last hence the night. Drama. What I'm saying yes, is hence the drama. But, because I do want to talk more about the demography and actually about what it means that the Supreme Court is so radical. Um, but I want to first get you guys to understand the suspense, the drama, the 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 the, the cast of characters. I mean, it, it's all it's so Shakespearean, isn't it all? Or <laughs> 
maybe Aristophanes. But um, so basically what happened was we have this government. This government, as uh, Gadi was saying, is comprised of uh, two would-be or self-proclaimed right-wing parties that are supposed to protect Israel's national interests from all of the radicals that they've joined a coalition with. Problem is that the radicals make up 80% of the coalition, or I mean, give or take a few percentages, but they dominate the coalition. Much as Ilhan Omar and the Hamas uh, caucus dominates Democratic Party in, in Congress. And uh, Naftali Bennett, the super ultra-nationalist and his sidekick uh, interior minister, Ayelet Shaked, are completely beholden to the Muslim Brotherhood elements of the coalition and the anti-Zionist elements of the coalition from the Merits Party. And uh, so they had this idea and they've been pushing it for weeks, is that they didn't have their 61-seat bare majority coalition, couldn't get together the votes to pass this routine measure to protect Israel. And so they decided that the way to get it through was by uh, pressuring the opposition, which they're shunning. This entire government is about shunning the right-wing majority of Israel by barring the Likud party, which is the governing party. It's 30, 30 members. The second largest party is only, what, 17 in Yeshatid, which is the largest faction in this coalition of, of, of uh, Lilliputians that have taken down Gulliver Netanyahu, right? And so they blocked Likud. They've banned the ultra-Orthodox. They've spent the past month in power, three weeks in power, however long it's been, attacking both, you know, and demonizing both. And then they said, you have to save us. If you don't save us, if you don't vote for this measure, then you're unpatriotic, then you're anti-Zionist, never bothering to mention or pay attention to the fact that the reason that we got into this pickle is because they formed an anti-Zionist government. So they've been pushing this campaign and with the firm support of our of our radicalized media that says that, that um, you know, it would be unpatriotic for the Likud not to serve as the servants of a uh, coalition that exists to annihilate it uh, and passing this measure. And that's what's really important. And so last night was sort of uh, the showdown time. It was high noon or high midnight. And... Uh, they had left the Likud had left its you know cards very close to its chest. What it was going to be doing, what the opposition was going to be doing, and uh, in the end, this is what happened. Um, Ayelet Shaked, because the, the the temporary order expires tomorrow, I think on the seventh of July. Uh, she said, well, she was going to bring it to a vote and by hell or by high water and the Likud better vote for it or else they were going to get terrible press and they're going to destroy the country. Um, and the Likud, in the meantime, had said to her, Binyamin Netanyahu, uh, offered her a compromise. He said, look, you know, this is untenable, this every year thing, plus the fact that, you know, looking ahead, Yair Lapid, who is a leftist, is supposed to re- replace the ostensible right winger Bennett as prime minister in just two years. So you don't know, you know, what will happen when he's in charge, whether they're even going to bother to renew this thing. So Likud said, look. You know, we'll agree to extend this provision for an extra three months, two months, whatever is needed. And in the meantime, uh, we'll work with you to pass a permanent law, a permanent citizenship law that includes this and makes it so that we don't have to renew this every year. We tried to do it in the past. Of course, Ayala Chiquette as, def- as justice minister blocked it. But, you know, let's work together. Then you'll have a majority. There are 65 members of the right in the Knesset. This is a very large, sizable majority. Work with us and we'll get through this together. She refused to even sit with them, right? But, she but, wouldn't but, even- but, but let's not pretend. This means that the, the collapse of their coalition, because there is no oh, well. way on earth that, that the Muslim Brotherhood is going to agree to a permanent limit on Palestinian immigration, and Meretz is not going to agree. And Avodah, you know, Avodah labor is just a Meretz too hiding behind a poster of Rabin. But I don't understand. How can you say that, Gadi? I mean, how could you possibly say that? Are you saying that Naftali Bennett, the ultra-nationalist, along with his sidekick, Ayala Chaked, along with their other, you know, uh, ultra-nationalist uh, partners, the breakaway Likudniks, Gidon Saar, the justice minister, Tzvika Hauser, and Yoaz Hendel, and all the red Zev Elkin, all of these people are just fronts for Muslim Brotherhood-dominated uh, government? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, no. 
You'd no, never no, no. say that, would you? <laughs> no, no, but I but I just wanted to alert our <laughs> listeners to the fact that, that Likud knew that Ayelet was in a bind, and this was also aimed at shaking this coalition or even collapsing it, which so close was so close to happening, which is why you're smiling to yourself now. So I'll let you do the crescendo. What no, happened? I, I hope I'm doing a crescendo. It's been a long time since I quit piano lessons, but let me just say that um so so the the Likud offered her this bargain, which if she were leading a Zionist government, right? She would she would grab with both arms. She would say, "This is a great solution, terrific." Because after all, there is a right wing majority now. Granted, we formed the coalition we did because we wanted to get rid of the right wing majority leader Benjamin Netanyahu. But uh, yeah, okay, let's work together for the benefit of the for the greater good for 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 the good of the country uh, to safeguard everything that we hold dear. But she refused to do that because, as Gotti said, she would have no government then, right? And her government, oddly enough, is completely dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood and by anti-Zionists who threatened to bolt if she dared to go forward. So instead of doing that, like, what is it, three o'clock in the morning or something like that? After Oh, she said, this is going to go through. I'm going to push it through as is. There are not going to be any changes to the temporary order. We're going to vote on it as it exists. I'm not going to agree. I'm not open to extortion from the Muslim Brotherhood, from the United Arab List, the uh, Ram. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be beholden to them. I'm not going to be beholden to Merits, which you know is is an anti-Zionist party. I'm not going to be beholden to them. I'm not going to be beholden to the uh, Arab member of Congress uh, of uh, Knesset from uh, from the Labor Party, Imtisan Marana. Who, who dreams of annihilating the city of Zichon Yaakov. Uh, I mean, no, I'm not going to be beholden to any of these people. I'm just going to put through the order as it is and whoever, and, and let the chips fall where, where, they, where they may. But then at three o'clock in the morning, she presented amendments to the law. So what, what were those amendments? Did you happen to catch them? Because there were a couple of changes in them as more and more information came out. It, it, seems, it seems that illegally they were hiding some of the information. It's, it's, it's actually illegal because she was going to have the members of Knesset vote on something that they weren't aware of. Is that she misrepresented. That she misrepresented. And, and uh, so, so the, the, the bottom line of it is that no, no, no. there are going to be no, no, no. This multiple is important. exceptions. Multiple no, 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 exceptions. it's important to go through it. It's important to go through it. <laughs> You're enjoying it too much. <laughs> well, it's schadenfreude. In, in Hebrew, we have the Finally. expression, there's, right, there's no, there's no happiness, <laughs> happiness, like the happiness at watching others suffer. So here, here, here it goes. So Ayala Chiquette at three o'clock in the morning, this is, this is a woman who is reputed to be Israel's version of Margaret Thatcher. This is Israel's iron lady. She was a woman of her convictions until she decided she liked it. She liked Groucho Marx's view of convictions better than Maggie Thatcher's. Right. So she changed them at two, at three o'clock in the morning. She how, got do new say, convictions. how do you say smartoot in English? Yeah, she's a, she's a, she's a dish towel. <laughs> dish rag. This, is what, what this is what a member of Knesset called her from the podium to, right. to clap. A, a former, her former party colleague, right? Yeah. He called her a dish rag. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> just, just saying. All right. So, or maybe, or maybe like a squeegee, but whatever. So, um, so what, uh, what she said was, her new convictions brought her to the conclusion that no, actually what she was going to do is have exceptions. She claimed that under the exceptions, under the compromise that she reached with the Muslim Brotherhood Party, Ram, uh, that she was going to uh, approve uh, the naturalization of 1,600 Palestinians. Then <laughs> this morning, the Merits uh, Arab anti-Zionist regional co uh, cooperation minister, uh, uh, Fredge, uh, what's his Isawi name? Isawi Fridge. Fridge. Isawi Fridge. So he said in an interview with Arab Radio, which we're not supposed to know about because he said it in Arabic, but he said, well, actually, there were, th there were 3,000 uh, people who were supposed to be immediately naturalized in her in her, in her her compromise, but we didn't want to tell anybody because we didn't want to empower the right. So the, he, there it had, would scare the right. It would right. So right. It, 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 this was... This is nearly doubling what she said from 1,600 to 3,000. Then later it came out that no, actually it was 5,000. We don't know the actual number, but what is clear enough is that they were presenting a law not as written, but as they wanted it to be considered, which is, as Gotti said, illegal. At any rate, 
the 1600 was enough, right? It was enough because it showed that the principle had just been broken, that now we have an anti-Zionist dominated government that cannot pass a, a law, a temporary law, albeit, but it can't pass just basic uh, Zionist legislation that protects Israel from a national security perspective and protects Israel's Jewish character, national character, they're simply incapable of doing so because of the nature of the beast. They're a government that is dominated by the Hamas wing of the Knesset. So, so the situation is when the drama comes. Let me just. Uh, make oh yeah. Sure so you give you give, you give the conclusion, right? No, exactly. no, no. You, you will give the conclusion. You give but let me lay no, no, out. No, you give act three. Give act three. Give act three. Give act three. So, so, so when we reach this this vote, there is the coalition in which there is a tiny Zionist minority, and. No. In order, yeah. A tiny Zionist minority? Yeah, in the coalition. Oh, you mean the, 12, yes, the 20%. Yeah, so so they're a minority in their own left-wing coalition, and their left-wing coalition does not want this amendment to be enacted. So she gives more and more and more concessions to the Muslim Brotherhood and to Meretz. This is not enough, because two of the Ram people would not vote for it under any circumstances. So in order to save face, she needs the coalition to vote for her. And this is like, these people are children. It's like they're the coalition, but they they think that their job is to throw out the opposition. It's like still, it's Netanyahu's responsibility. They're the government. They're setting a government up with a Muslim Brotherhood, and now they're fuming at Likud for not saving them. But what happened is that the Right, the, the 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 right wing block, which is the opposition, voted against this because it wants the government out and because of all the concession that she made. And the extreme left also voted against it, and they were left in the final counting with one member, Amichai Shikli, who became the uh, the deciding casting vote. And because of the concessions, he said he voted with the right, and so the coalition. It, it, it was also made into a confidence vote. So the coalition met its first challenge and completely failed, where everybody said it would fail. You, this, this, nothing unites this coalition except that they hate Bibi. And therefore, any, and, and when they formed it, they said, oh, we will only deal with civil matters. We will not deal, we will postpone all the politics, but politics doesn't wait for them. So the time came, the vote came, and in the early morning hours, it was a 59 to 59 vote, a tie, and they couldn't extend the uh, the uh, the, the uh, provision. And now they're saying that Likud has betrayed Zionism. Right. And, and you know, it's important to note that even though they lost the vote, they could, we, the no confidence measure couldn't pass because there aren't 61 votes and 120 votes. Uh, Knesset, you need 61 votes to positively vote no confidence in a government in order to it to fall. So we're still in the same conundrum we've been in since the elections in March, which is that you can't because uh, uh, Naftali Bennett and his uh, and his uh, and his uh, party are motivated by, you know, just a will to power in megalomania. And Giron Saar and his party are motivated by a psychotic hatred of Netanyahu. Uh, we can't get uh, two defectors to sign on to a no confidence vote. So they can lose bills, they can lose, uh, they can lose on laws, but they cannot uh, lose power. And one of the main concerns that, that I have, and I'm sure is shared by, by you, although we do relish this victory, is, is twofold. One is this is a Pyrrhic victory because the same Ayala Chiked now will have to reject citizenship applications from the Palestinians. And she's going to be afraid to do so because anybody that she rejects is going to immediately cause a coalition crisis. So she may become a rubber stamp for that. And secondly, you know, as time goes by and it becomes more and more clear that Naftali and Ayelet have, and, and Giron Saar and Zev Elkin and all of their ilk have replaced their convictions with new ones to justify from an ideological perspective their political treachery. Um, there's good, they're going to have less and less trouble, personal trouble, personal angst from 
betraying their voters. They're going to be fine with that increasingly because that's just the nature of the beast. Once you've taken that step in the direction of treachery, you've already walked out the door. And so that's a, that's a real problem. Yeah, and the final irony was that Ayelet Shaked wrote, you see, now the Likud is voting with the uh, joint Arab list against this provision to protect Zionism. So she's in a coalition with the Muslim Brotherhood, but since the, the votes against it came from the two sides of the spectrum, she's now blaming Likud for cooperating in the opposition with an Arab right. party. And again, the thing here, you know, because and it's important in a way to point out how obscene this is, because um, nothing is clear anymore. Because we're living in a in a in a world of lies, where what the media reports is very far from the truth, and deliberately so. Um, you know, it's very important to point out that Ayelet and Naftali made their bed with the Muslim Brotherhood and with Meretz and with the Labor Party. They chose this coalition. They didn't have to. In fact, everybody expected them not to, but they did, along with Giron Saar and his and his party. Um, the Likud did not choose who it was going to be in the opposition with. They didn't come to an agreement with the joint Arab list, which supports Iran and the Hezbollah and Assad and all the rest of it, and obviously the PLO. They didn't, they didn't sit with them and say, let's work together to undermine this government. They just found themselves there because this entire coalition exists in order to deny the will of the voters that wanted uh, ben Benjamin Netanyahu to, to remain prime minister. So so the whole concept that this is that 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 Likud willed itself to work with the joint Arab list is in and of itself just the most the the the, the height of sanctimony and dishonesty. But again, we've we've come to expect it from from the likes of uh, Naftali Bennett and uh, Ayala Chaked. But um I, I do want to just point out just so people understand how horrible this is all uh, for the country. Um, so we were talking about the fact that this measure has two purposes. One is security and one is demographic. You know, Israel is the only Jewish state. Uh, it is the only non-Muslim state from uh, its border with the Jordan River um, to Pakistan. And so demography is a very big deal. Um, and obviously, the way that Israel has always been able to secure its Jewish majority, I mean, there are two ways. One, and the most important way, is through Jewish immigration, right? I mean, uh, the fact is that uh, we have the law of return, which was, I think, the second law that was passed by the Knesset right after Israel uh, uh, won the War of Independence in, in 1949. Um, and the law of return grants uh, full uh, freedom of immigration to every every Jew on earth uh, to the Jewish state. And so that law has brought in millions and millions of Jews from the four corners of the earth uh, to Israel, uh, yours truly being one of them. Um, but uh, but uh, that's, that's always been the basis of Israel's very large Jewish majority. And we have about 79% of uh, Israel's population is Jewish. The other way that we prevented uh, Israel from being over overcome by uh, non-Jews and, and losing its national identity as a Jewish state is through immigration law and uh, by enforcing our borders, by not just letting everybody come in. And <clears throat> one, of, one of the things that we've seen in this whole post-nationalist push by the yep. transnationalist left, right, is a rejection, is, is an attempt to claim that national identity uh, whether it's Jewish or American or Polish or British or French or anything else, that anybody who aspires to maintain and preserve their national identity is necessarily a racist. And since the Jews were the first people who ever uh, self-consciously uh, determined their identity as a nation, we did it at, at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments um, in the Bible, um, Israel is sort of the is sort of the uh, prototypical nation state. And both due to anti-Semitism and due to the fact that we're the most natural nation state on earth, 
Um, we've received, uh, we've, we were the first people on the chopping block of uh, the communists and the Soviet Union and then threw them into the cultural Marxism of the international left, uh, being referred to as, as racists uh, for our nationalism. And that, of course, was ensconced most formally in 1975 in the Zionism is Racism uh, uh, UN General Assembly uh, Resolution 3379. Uh, so uh, we've been at the, and now this has been universally rejected across, you know, the board in Israel, obviously, and in the United States as well, and in other countries too. And it was, in fact, I mean, it was repealed in the United Nations in, 19, in 1991. The problem is that Israel's uh, elite ruling class that is most powerfully found in our judiciary and in our legal system actually embraces that idea. It actually embraces that idea that there's something inherently racist about Jewish nationalism. And I dare say all nationalisms, but lucky for everybody else on the earth, they're not the judges in the Supreme Court of the United States or any other country. They're here. And they actually agree, or they at least adjudicate on the basis of, of agreeing with the UN Security, the UN General Assembly resolution that was repealed in 1991 uh, that claims that Zionism is a form of racism. So that the fear of our of our elected leaders is that if they pass a citizenship law that that active that takes an active measure in blocking the naturalization of of uh, citizens of the Palestinian Authority as Israelis um, that the Supreme Court will say that it's it's illegal that it's unconstitutional, that, not that we have a constitution, but you know that they'll say that and that they'll cancel the law claiming that it's racist. So that we've gotten to the point in Israel with our legal fraternity, with our legal tyranny, that the Knesset hides behind national security as a means to prevent uh, the mass immigration of foreign or hostile non-Jewish populations into the Jewish state. They can't simply do it outright, and I think you know. I think it's a it's a set, it's a statement, not only of where of what we're up against in Israel, but really I think you know what happens here tends to be a laboratory that then is exported around the Western world by the same Western uh, uh, NGOs that are funding a lot of the radicalization of Israeli. Uh, of Israeli law, of, Israel, of Israel's legal uh, fraternity, uh, and then it's being brought into the United States and it's being brought into the EU. But it's uh, it's also the exact same argument everywhere because everywhere where the where, where the radical left, I, I'm not I'm uncomfortable with the, with the term left here for for various reasons. The, the, let's call them the radical progressives, as they call themselves. Okay. Um, they always make the argument that anyone who is who wants to restrict any kind of immigration is a racist. And so we have the the front to save South Tel Aviv, right? With the Shefi Paz, whom we mentioned, the 70-year-old combative lesbian who was once a LGBT activist and is now like on the radical um, on the radical right, is labeled a racist, though she is against illegal immigration from everywhere. But it's most convenient to point at the African immigrants and say, oh, it's because they're, it's because they're black. And it's the same thing with Tommy Robinson in England, and it's the same thing with, with, with Donald Trump in America. Everywhere, any, any Western country, where you're, when you try to restrict immigration um, or Orban you're, you're, in Hungary you're, you're yeah you're labeled a, a racist and this is because <clears throat> what they are systematically doing is they that they are they are targeting nationalism and they are moving to do the same thing they did with Zionism that the aim is to portray nationalism as fascism and then the next step in this argument is what I call anti-democratic liberalism because they then say that the masses are nationalists and therefore racist and so giving them political power is a permanent danger of fascism and this is why we we need to have responsible adults for instance in the courts or international forums or in the ICC the International Criminal Court in The Hague um, or in the UN or other places where 
China can dominate um, that, so that we can take power away from these dangerous citizens because the, the, the crux of the argument is that the greatest danger to democracy is citizens. You know, it's really funny because and that brings us back to Naftali Bennett. And what on earth is he doing here, right? I mean, he was the uh, he was the uh, CEO of the Council of uh, Israeli Communities in Judea and Samaria as his first uh, major uh, independent gig in public life before, you know, after he was, after Netanyahu fired him from being his bureau chief when Netanyahu was head of the opposition in 2005, 2006, or 2006, 2007. So um, what is he doing here? with these post-nationalists. And I think, you know, our publisher and friend Rotem Sela was on a television show with me last Thursday and he made a very compelling point. He said with Naftali, um, he he feels, I mean, he didn't put it this way, but I'll just put what Rotem said into the framework of what we were talking about. Because what, what he said was essentially, you know, Naftali decided that he wants to use the bureaucracy, wants to use democratic uh, tricks of, of uh, in the Knesset. Uh, to replace the people. Um, you know, Naftali is a megalomaniac. He has put himself forward as prime ministerial candidate, uh, you know, really since he joined uh, politics as the head of the uh, religious Zionist party in, in 2013. And he has always been presenting himself as a prime ministerial candidate. And, uh, you know, in the last two, I think, elections out of the series of four that we've had, he's openly called himself a candidate for prime minister. Now, we don't have direct elections uh, for the prime minister, but in all the polls that we're asking people who would they prefer from a slate of candidates, Netanyahu has always beaten Naftali Bennett by around, by a minimum of 20 points, right? So, you know, there was never any polling data, data that suggested that the public wanted him. Uh, there was never any polling data of the relative strength of, of the parties that he led to make anybody believe that he had a chance of ever beating Netanyahu uh, at the ballot box. But nonetheless, he put himself forward repeatedly as a candidate for prime minister and the, and the public kept rejecting him, just consistently rejecting him, refused to even consider bringing him in as prime minister with a massive gap. You know, this time Yamina, his party had seven seats in the Knesset to Likud's 30, right? I mean, there's no, there's, it's more than four times more. And uh, and yet, you know, he he still thinks that he's a legitimate prime minister, and the reason is because he just he just said, well, what the people think isn't important, right? It's not even a suggestion. I don't care. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to get the position of prime minister in exchange for giving away everything that I ran on, and I'm going to make a deal with uh, Yair Lapid that gives me that job. And that's the job I want. And I don't care what the people say. I'm replacing the people with parliamentary tricks. And so there you see, you know, in a way, it's like uh, Liz Cheney, you know, I mean, she has no position in the Republican Party. She's not going to get reelected probably uh, from West Virginia uh, to serve in Congress. So instead, she said, well, I don't care what any of you think. You're all fascists. I'm going to vote for a second impeachment, even though there's no evidence of any high crime or misdemeanor on the part of the outgoing president. And even though he's not going to be serving in office by the time that the Senate rolls, or, you know, Senate trial rolls around, the chief justice uh, thinks this is such a farce that he won't even preside over the Senate trial. So, I mean, she said, I'm going with the Democrats. Now she's on the on the on the January 6th commission that uh, Nancy Pelosi has concocted to try to criminalize all Republicans. So, you know, Naftali is sort of an Israeli never Trump or an, an Israeli Liz Cheney, where he says, I don't care what my voters think. I don't care at all. It, it, you know, I was able to maneuver uh, and, to, and to exploit uh, loopholes in the system. And the fact that I share with the ruling class on the left an, an undying desire to oust Netanyahu from power, because as I see it, he's the principal obstacle to the public recognizing how wonderful I am, the wonder of me, the miracle of me, you know, that I am the, I would, I am the, uh, I, I am what they've been dreaming of all of their lives. I am the hope that they desire. I am, I am everything and I am omnipotent and I am perfect. And the minute that I oust mean old, nasty old, mean old, nasty old, old you know, BB, everything was going to be great. So I think that here we see, you know, he, like they, 
reject, he rejects the people. He thinks the people are passe. They won't vote for me. And therefore, I'm just going to cancel them out. They're no longer important. Voters aren't important, which is why I think that even though, you know, yesterday's vote or, uh, you know, the early morning of today's vote, what was may very well have been, you know, the first step on the path to overthrowing this government, as long as this government sticks around, the longer it sticks around with each passing day, Naftali is going to try harder and or less and less hard, sorry, to hide the fact that as of today, he stands before us a man without convictions, but very firmly on the left. Yeah, so we started this on a happy note, but it's not not a happy but subject. But I am but I but I it's a very unhappy subject, but I am optimistic because I saw the fact you, I is, saw you, you know, I saw optimism on your Twitter feed this morning. So Would I was you, so happy. Would you, would you explain that, please? This is so out of line, Carolyn. Right. But the reason is because they didn't win, because they can't pass anything, because they can't get anything done, because the public at the end of the day does have a say in the Knesset, and, and because they can't make their points. And because one final reason is because they're exposed. You know, I mean, I think more and more... Uh, The, the the people who still support them on the right, who still think, you know, who hate Netanyahu just like they do, the people in Judea and Samaria, where I live, you know, uh, the religious Zionist people, you know, all my neighbors who 43% of the, they got 43% of the vote in a fraud, my community, right? Um, that more and more people are realizing that they've been had. And, They've seen it uh, in two ways. They saw, you know, everybody was upholding this fake deal on the uh, community of Ivyatar that we talked about last week that uh, self-evacuated, voluntarily evacuated on the basis of a, of a deal that Naftali and Ayelet claimed that they had made that was going to enable this community to leave now but come back really, really quickly. And this week, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid said that there was no such deal and that Eviatar is not likely uh, to be re reinstated anytime soon, so there's nothing to worry about, which I wrote about in Israel last week, and I foresaw this from you know happening, and it, and it took him two days to expose that, in fact, Carolyn Glick was right, and that uh, everybody that was praising them uh, was living on La La Land. And I think that that you know, that got a lot of people thinking. And then this latest thing, you know, with Ayala Chiked, essentially giving, uh, uh, you know, opening up the floodgates of Palestinian naturalization in Israel uh, is, is very, and Naftali Bennett uh, joining her in this, uh, is very much a signal uh, that there's a lot to be concerned about. And, and the more people recognizing this, um, I think the more difficult it will be going forward for this government. There was an argument made um, by those who share our opinions and yet said it was not it was not visible in the Knesset. But some people said, look, this is not the right subject to pick on because this will be a pyrrhic victory. You, you will shake the coalition, but you would not stop the uh, naturalization of Palestinians through family unification. And by the time this controversy is over, there will be 50,000 more uh, naturalized in Israel. And, and I must say that that, that, that gave me pause. I, was, I finally came down on the end, on, on the side of, of rejecting this deal, partly because it was so, it was menukav, um, It was pierced with so many concessions to, 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 the, to, the, to the Muslim Brotherhood that it made little difference. But it is, you know, and this will be the dilemma because what they, what they gambled on is that the Likud is patriotic. And so whenever there'd be a critical thing, their commitment to the radical left will, will be uh, annulled by the fact that Likud will vote from them from the opposition. So partly what 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 experienced parliamentarians were said, we had to show them on the first step that they cannot count on Likud. And so now they're going to eat the, the, the stew that they've cooked, but the problem is we might all be going to be eating the stew that they cooked. I agree. Um, look, I mean, that's what happens when you have an anti-Zionist government in charge, right? And, and I think that the overwhelming sense that I had all along 
uh, with this because obviously, you know, your visceral feelings, of course you have to vote for this, right? But this government is so dangerous by its very existence that everything has to be done to overthrow it as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we cannot, we simply cannot abide by a situation where people who think that Israel has no right to exist and who make common cause with Israel's enemies are in charge. It's just too dangerous. And so the danger that you get from one law is, is in a way, um, it's overwhelmed by this cascade of dangers that exist on every level because you have a government that is led uh, formally by an empty suit. Uh, well, no, actually by a whore in the case of uh, Naftali Bennett. And uh, sorry, but it's true. I mean, what do you call somebody who sells out to the highest bidder? I think you so call we have a one whore and one dish rag. So you no, no, no. You have one whore, and you have an empty suit in Yair Lapid, who is both an imbecile and uh, motivated mainly by the praise that he hopes to always receive from the Biden administration, which is, um, which is, which is anti-American. You know, it's it's this government, but on a much grander scale. And here, you know, I think we should come to Iran, which was another subject that I wanted to talk about, because I just don't feel like we can, uh, even though, you know, this is in a way more fun to talk about because we did get a victory, even if it's a, a Pyrrhic victory, Pyrrhic victories are still victories. And, and so we like them, you know, we'll take them if that's all we can get. But you know, I mean, that's how desperate we become. We prefer pairing victories to another defeat. But um, you know, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State of the United States of America, just announced this week that the United States was ending sanctions on three Iranians that this that the Trump administration sanctioned for their role uh, in September of twenty for their role in uh, in Iran's uh, ballistic weapons, uh, ballistic missiles program. And so here, the thing that's notable here is that. It, well, it's twofold. I'm actually writing my my Newsweek article about this. Is it's twofold. One is that um, the Biden administration is signaling desperation, right? I mean, uh, they they President Trump, President Trump President Biden pledged that he wasn't going to lower sanctions on Iran so long as they don't go back into the nuclear deal, right? So he said on uh, that Sunday morning program. And uh, here they are, uh, uh, removing sanctions uh, from Iran, and Iran has not at all gotten close to agreeing to the nuclear deal. And the other thing is that they're doing this after um, Ibrahim Raisi, who's the uh, chief justice of Iran's judiciary, was just elevated in another you know, fake election. Uh, to serve as the next president of Iran, and he's going to be inaugurated next next month. And uh, Raisi is is interesting both for the message that his elevation sends to the Iranian public and also to the Biden administration. The Iranian public, it says, look, this guy is a mass murderer. You know that. In 1988, he presided over and, and in some cases took active part in the execution, torture, rape of 30,000 Iranians, including many, many children. Um, 30,000, 30,000, that's that's 30 times 1,000, 30,000 Iranian citizens were murdered by this man in 1988. And subsequently, as he rose in the ladder in Iran's judiciary, he presided over, he doomed to death through his judgment, thousands of other uh, uh, Iranian political dissidents. So this is a mass murder. He's a psychopath. And, uh, and Khomeini wants him to take over his ayatollah, apparently, after Khomeini finally kicks the bucket. And so Raisi has now been elevated from the head of the judiciary to the presidency of Iran. And um, and so to the Iranian people who today are out in the streets protesting, you have the petroleum industry workers have been on strike now for 10 days. You have people throughout the country who are protesting in the streets because of water shortages and electrical power outages. Uh, the, the country is on the verge of economic collapse because of all of these things. And so by bringing in Raisi, Khamenei is telling them, you know, in two weeks, your vacation is over, we're gonna start mass killing again. Not that they ever stopped, but you know, this is a very clear message to the Iranian people that another age of repression is about to begin and that this regime will step at nothing to protect itself. And to the Biden administration saying, we hold you in utter contempt, utter contempt. We expect you to give us money 
That's it. We want money from you. We and 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 here the Western media is so brain dead, right? That they're saying, well, they're repeating. Oh, Rice said that he is fine with continuing the ne- negotiations towards Iran's re- return to the nuclear deal. Now, of course, he is. Because if they return to the nuclear deal, they're not going to stop any of their illicit nuclear activities. They're still going to be racing to the nuclear finish line. And the Biden administration knows that. But if they agree to go back to the limitations on their nuclear activities as prescribed by the JCPOA, which of course all end, all of them end by 2030, most of them end in four years by 2025, um, then uh, uh, they get upfront um I think $90 billion in sanctions relief, another 50 billion in expected revenues from the restoration of their oil exports uh, with the abrogation of US uh, sanctions so that- And one thing they've learned, one thing they've learned is that no matter how much they would spit on the American administration, it will only say it's raining because its whole frame of mind is a narcissistic one where the hatred of the other is just our fault. So if we behave, they'll stop hating us. It's just, it's a, it, it's a classic example of the soft bigotry of low expectations. They, they're not, they, they don't even take them seriously, but these guys, these Iranians, they're very serious about their religious fun- fundamentalism. They do believe that America is the big Satan and America is not listening. They're negotiating, while they're calling them Satan's, not to say that they're attacking them with drones and other and missiles in Iraq. You know, it's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but I mean, just to show how horrific all of this is, and to give our to give you our our beloved viewers and listeners a sense of just how maniacal, how psychopathic Ricey is. So, uh, and how serious he is he is about his genocidal faith. in In 1988, when he was busy killing 30,000 people. A lot of those people were women and girls. And so he ordered that they all be raped before they were murdered, because according to Islamic tradition, uh, virgins go to heaven. And he wanted to make sure that none of them were virgins because he was sending the message to the Iranian people that anybody who questions in any way the regime is doomed to eternal damnation. And um, you don't do that, really. And, I mean, you do that if you're a sadist and you, you know, whatever. But he is a fanatic. He believes this stuff. You know, he ordered the mass rape of women and girls in 1988 because he believes in eternal damnation. But the Biden and, you know, administration is horrified by the murder of Khashoggi. Right. Well, that just again, that on, shows, on human you right know, grounds. Yeah, human it rights just shows grounds. how fanatical on the other side the Biden administration is, because at this point, there's no moral justification of any sort. There's isn't going to lead to peace and there's no denying that it's going to lead to war. There's no denying that it's going to lead to the world's greatest sponsor of terrorism acquiring a nuclear arsenal within, you know, within uh, you know, in just a couple of years. There's no denying it. There's no denying that this is a regime that has caused and will continue to cause mass murder of its own people and of everybody that stands in its path to, to global supremacy. Yeah. And, so there's and, and no, not to, there's not no way to, to justify it. Not to mention a nuclear arm race that this would trigger in the Middle East. And then there are a lot of crazies in this region and a lot of money. And these people are going to acquire bombs and it's going to be like their, uh, their, their, pet, their new pet toy and and this is this is really dangerous when people are fanatics who thinks who think that you know if, if you kill Jews you go to heaven what then if you if you if, if there are single suicide bombers how far is that from collective suicide decided by fanatic leaders it's a real danger here it's very dangerous. And, you know, and I don't want to I, I I want the focus here to be on the Biden administration because they're the ones that are perpetrating this. This I think it's a crime against humanity. I mean, you know, people say their own their own war on drug on guns. Right. Is they oh, let's go after the gun manufacturer. Right. Let's not hold criminals accountable for their actions. Let's say that guns are accountable. Right. Well, here, they're the ones putting the guns. They're the ones putting the ballistic missiles. They're the ones putting the nuclear weapons. They're the ones putting billions and billions of dollars into the hands of psychotic 
uh, Islamo-fascists, right? Who 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 seek to commit genocide, not only you know of their own fellow Iranians, but of all the Jews, of the Sunnis, of the United States of America, of the American people. You know, they're putting these guns in the hands of these murderers by by enacting, by pushing forward with this nuclear diplomacy that is insane, that is, again, morally unjustifiable, strategically insane by any measure, you know. And and so and but we have to go to for a second to our strategically illiterate government, because they said before they even formed this godforsaken thing called the government, they said that they didn't, you know, that that Netanyahu was wrong for uh, disputing America or disagreeing or opposing uh, U.S. policy on Iran publicly. Now there weren't going to be any disagreements between us and the Biden administration that we're going to be making public. We're good friends. We share the same values. I don't share the same values, by the way, as as most of the people who are pushing the or any of the people who are pushing this policy in the Biden administration. Uh, my values tell me that you know you don't appease mass murderers. That's like against my values, you know. So what I'm saying is that you know we have to be able to 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 oppose this to defy the americans and our government is so sure that the problem with the americans is that netanyahu wasn't nice to them and so he, they're saying we're not netanyahu we're going to be nice to the democrats whose animosity towards israel and towards jews you know began with the primary the anti-semitic primary that ned lamont the current governor of connecticut waged against joe, joe lieberman in 2006 that was the first time that it came out from the woodwork the anti-semitism of the democrat party and by the way he was supported by hillary clinton who was sen- senator in new york but they're saying that the problem and and netanyahu wasn't prime minister he was the head of the opposition so here they're saying that it's all Netanyahu's fault that the Democrats have become Corbynized, that the Hamas wing of the Democratic Party sets the policy of the party. It's all, but and we're going to be nice to Biden and everything's going to be fine. We're not going to defy them on Iran and then they're going to stop abusing Iran. None of this is true. And at this moment in our history, it's very dangerous that these people are in power. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, Dude, again, it really sucks, again, man. It just like sucks. Again, no, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking here we are ending on a on a sad note again. Yeah, we don't want we don't want to get anyone's hopes up. No, but on the other hand, we did have a victory yesterday, and and actually there there is another lesson to be learned from this victory yesterday, and the reason why it's important. First of all, like I said, and like we say every week when we're talking to people and we're telling you guys, you know, you got to subscribe to us. Let's get the truth out. Let's win this battle for the war of ideas. You can only do it by getting the truth out. And then we get all of these emails from our viewers who say, Carolyn, you know, I love you. I love you. But, you know, I watch you and I kind of want to slip my wrists after your show. So, you know, could you try to lighten up a little bit, you know, please. So here's the thing. We had a victory yesterday, and it's an important victory. It's not really a Pyrrhic victory, because if they had passed this law yesterday with Likud support, you know, they didn't want Likud support. They wanted to keep this coalition together, and that's why she made the compromise with the United Arab List. And that was why, because she's more interested in maintaining her grip on power. She and he, Yelich Chiquette and Naftali Bennett. And because they have their, nowhere to go. Because this got, is their only right. their only chance of survival. They've crossed the lines, and they think I don't know what who who advised them on these these topics, but they think now that they would get their next time they run for election, they would have left wing voters voting for them. The left has just chewed them and will spit them out in the next round. So, but so the thing is, is that I I actually believe that they're not going to be able to really move forward with a lot of the things they want to do. I mean, it's true that you need 61 seats, 61 votes to pass and to bring down the government. But here's just a thought. Naftali Bennett is supposed to go to Washington in a couple of weeks. And I consider that to be a major danger because he's not capable of protecting any of Israel's interests. Because like you said, he has no past. He burned his bridges to the past. He has no future. Nobody will vote for him. All he has is the present. And therefore, you know, he's not going to, he has zero leverage room with, you know, power over Biden. And it's going to be very, very bad, but I, it'll be very difficult for him to go, you know? 
Yep. It'll be very difficult for him to go because he leaves the country. Probably other members of Knesset are going to have to be coming with him and his entourage. I mean, he's supposed to go to the UNG General Assembly meeting in September. And, and he's Lapid going with already, Lapid. <laughs> right. And, and Lapid won't let him go alone, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and so it's, the minute that he leaves the country, the minute that any of the, the ministers of this government leave the country, they know that the Likud is going to foment a no confidence vote and they're going to lose it. So, you know, that's that's my sense. We're, we've started a ball in motion towards overturning this government. This is good news. This was a good week for us. Come on, this is what it means to be in the opposition. Small, yeah. secrete victories that lead to the overthrow of the government and new elections. Anyway, that's our view. That's my view. Is that your view? I don't know. Maybe it's not your view. Mostly it's my view, yeah. I've, I've come around. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, Carl, I'm a veteran of the left. It, it was a long journey for me to be sitting here in an agreement with Carolyn Glick. Oh, my God. It's really scary, right? It's terrible. <laughs> it anyway. used to be. <laughs> Works out I'm okay and I'm a pretty good cook, right? Anyway, so listen. Uh, we'll, yeah, I like your pizza. There you go. We'll talk soon. I make Chicago deep dish pizza, guys. Just so you know, it's on a YouTube video. I got it from YouTube. You can make it too. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week. Sign With a new up, recipe. Right. <laughs> Sign up, subscribe to our videos, and uh, tell all of your friends. Subscribe them too, willingly or unwittingly, or, or unwillingly, wittingly or unwittingly. And we will see you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye, Kelly. Bye-bye. Bye bye.